with traffic. With Hanukkah traffic, two hours. So we'll see. Okay. Um, okay, so we, we started talking about hatred. And I was thinking how to do this because I can see that it, it's something that we should cover. Um, and so I want to I first preface with two important points. Number one, and this is something that comes up all the time, there is no requirement that Hashem's way of being, meaning the Torah's way of being, conforms to what is intuitive to us or whatever particular culture we happen to be living in at the time, right? So it could be that what seems intuitively right and wrong to me or culturally right wrong are don't match up with Hashem and we shouldn't expect that they always will. Um, I, I, I think that it just has to be a given. It's a logical thing to say. It is. Now, the key point of chassidus is that we are supposed to be able to relate to Hashem. So, while it is true from a logical perspective that it is not a requirement that Hashem's way of being should necessarily match our way, that does create a big barrier in a relationship. If I cannot at least appreciate where else is going on, then that prevents me from feeling close to that person. And the same thing is going to be true with Hashem. So we need to keep these two things in mind. We, on the one hand, the truth is that there's no reason why things have to match up, you know, on some sort of objective level. On the other hand, in as much as we're supposed to have a relationship with Hashem, we do need to have some way of relating to it. Now, that means that there's going to need to be work done on two ends. Sometimes, the work that needs to be done is we need to let go of what we think is right and wrong. Right? And sometimes, person, sometimes to understand someone else, I need to be willing to let go of my preconceived notions. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to relate to where they're coming from. Um, I take this advice now. If you want to have a happy marriage, just remember that when you get married, your husband is not a masculine version of a woman. Right? So like, start off with the assumption that you shouldn't understand anything about what makes him tick and work backwards from there. Then the other way around, you'll make your life much happier. Okay? Um, and in general, actually with any two people, if you start off the assumption that this person is a different person, and as our sages say, no two people's minds are the same, you're probably going to be better off. So that's work on our part, to let go um, of insisting that everything fit into our intuitive notions, our cultural attitude. And on the other hand, there's the, there's the responsibility on Hashem's part um, to make where he's coming from and the way he is relatable to us. Now, on Hashem's part, there's Hashem himself, there's how Hashem is, reveals himself to people who are prophetic and people like the Alter Rebbe, and then there's the job of people like me, the teacher, to try and go for a step further and take the text and these ideas and, and bring them even more relatable. So we have to kind of meet somewhere in the middle, right? We have to, on the one hand, let go of the insistence that, it all, that if I'm going to relate to it, it has to be on my terms. And on the other hand, there also has to be the work on my part to make it as relatable as possible. That's the only way to take anything um, that, is n n that is not in that nice little space where chassidus overlaps with our popular psychology and really get it in, in a usable way. So given that introduction, now let's start again fresh, anew. We're going to talk about the fact that God hates. Okay? All right. So we're going to start from the beginning. Let's first define what we mean by hate, okay? Um, hatred is defined 
the term hatred or sina in, in, in Hebrew is defined as the opposite of love. And by opposite, I mean the way in which up and down are opposites. Up and down are opposites in the sense that a move upwards is the inverse of moving down, right? So if I'm moving up, I'm moving away from the down. If I'm moving down, I'm moving away from the up, right? Not every opposite is like that. I remember when I was a child, I was very confused because opposites are used in different ways until I figured out there are basically three ways people use opposites. One way is inverse, in the sense that up is the opposite of down. Sometimes we mean absence. Like dark is the opposite of light. You know, from a physical perspective, there isn't this substance called darkness that you can have more or less of, right? It's just when there's a less light, we call that dark, right? In an absence of light, a lacking of light, we call that dark. Right? That's the reason why people say the opposite of love is apathy. Right? If love is an emotional connection, emotional engagement, right? So apathy is the absence of emotion, right? Okay. But now you're using opposite in a different sense. In that sense, if you were to use that same wording, you would say the opposite of up would be motionless because what you mean is the opposite of... Motion. The ap- yeah, the absence of motion is not moving, right? Which is a little bit confusing because then you would just more broadly generalize it and say the, the absence of motion is being still. The absence of... F- the opposite of any feeling would be apathy. But okay. Um, not uniquely love. And then we also sometimes use opposite about two things which really have nothing to do with each other other than they just can't coexist at the same time in space. Like people say fire and water are opposites. Like water is its own thing, fire is its own thing. They really have nothing to do with each other. It just happens to be that you can't burn, you can't have fire in the place of water, you can't have water in the place of fire. They just, they're mutually exclusive. Okay. So now let's ask ourselves, when we say that love and hate are opposites, we don't mean that hate is the absence of love. And we don't mean that you can't experience love and hate simultaneously. In fact, most people do, right? We have a concept called love-hate relationships in English. Um, and we, we see the same thing, that Hashem, did Hashem love Shlomo Melech or hate Shlomo Melech? Anyone know? Love. love. Both. Love. Oh. Love. It was a love-hate relationship. Because on the one hand, Shlomo was the, the chosen of God who built the base of Migdash. And the day Hashem built the, the day Shlomo built the base of Migdash was like Hashem's wedding day. And it was a wonderful and was amazing. On the other hand, Shlomo married the daughter of Paro, um, which was a very bad thing. And so we see that... It said... It says that Hashem says, I forget which prophet says it, that Hashem says, my, my rage has been upon this city from the time in which it was founded, and it's a reference to Shlomo Melech, Merit, and he really like built up Yushalayim. Yeah. What? He did more than that, though. Also, he like, had more of what he was supposed to have. Yeah, yeah, but all, like, that was like the... That was like the, the tipping point? That was the tipping point. Yeah, and there's a whole discussion. The Gemara, sages in the Gemara get into a discussion about whether Shlomo Melch deserves to be in Gehenna or not. And eventually, like, I forget, someone comes and tells them it's not your job to decide those things. Yeah. We, we, see, we, see that, we see that Hashem also, um, you know, has this idea of love and hate. Can, and obviously there's a tension there, right? Um, but it, it is possible to both experience love and hate at the same time. What we mean by love and hate are opposites is that... Loving is the, is the inverse of hating, and hating is the inverse of loving. So with love, any kind of feeling of love is a kind of feeling that is a, a feeling of A, closeness. I feel close. If I love someone or I love something, I feel close to it. And I want to be closer. Now, let's just review. If I love the fish, do I eat it or do I not eat it? 
right? It depends what what well, kind of love. love right. If I what I love about the fish is the taste, then I eat it, right? What I love about the fish is its life, then I don't eat it, right? So closeness varies depending on what kind of, you know kind of love we're talking about, what kind of closeness it is, right? Closeness between spouses is not the same as closeness between parents and children. It's not the same thing between teachers and students, right? But they're all fish, parents, God, they all, we can all talk about love because the idea of being close and wanting that, and wanting to be closer in some sense. Good? Okay. So what would hate be? The not having Well, I feel a distance, right? Some kind of a distance. And not I feel a distance. What I want to be more distant. Okay? And specifically with hate, right? Um, specifically with hate... It's I want the other thing to be distant. I don't want to, if I hate somebody, I don't want to leave. I want them to leave. Okay? Can they actually hate people? People do hate people, unfortunately. Okay? There's a whole genre of, of, of literature and films um, that revolve around a theme called vengeance. Mm -hmm. And vengeance is when you hate somebody so much that you don't want to, them to exist in the same world as you. And you're maybe willing to destroy your life to make sure that they don't exist in the same world as you. Because that's how much you want. You want them out of the same reality. Okay, so that's extreme, right? Just like there's extreme romance, can be extreme hate. There can also be mild, like, you know, I have a relative who really hates gefilte fish. Which means not only does he not eat gefilte fish, but he will not sit next to someone eating gefilte fish, nor will he pass the gefilte fish. Like, that's like, there needs to be a gefilte fish free zone. Arms linked around him. If we hate something or someone, can we try and learn to not hate them? Sure. The same way. Not love yeah. 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 Although Hasidus is, is, is a very n negative view of tolerance. Let's just want to point that out. Hasidus, yeah. Because Hasidus sees everything fundamentally as either something which connects you to God or separates you from God. So if it's going to connect you to God, you should love. And if it's separating you from God, you should hate. There isn't really that stuff in the world that doesn't really matter. Even with people? I'm just saying it's... Can there not be an in-between? No, you should... Well, I mean, every person is created in the image of God. So, right? And, and if a person does sin, you should hate their sin. Like, well, like you, so what, the way Chassidus works about this is that... Like, a good way of thinking about just how Chassidus thinks about things is that Chassidus is a big believer in black and white thinking. But where you're, but instead of it like being there's a big box over here that's black and a big box over here that's white, think about it as if there's like um, a chessboard. There's a lot of little black and white squares. So if you keep, so if you zoom out, it looks great. If you zoom in, every little thing is either black and white. So this is good, but that was bad. And then you zoom in, actually, within the good, this part was good and this part was bad, right? And so it's not that like there's a fuzziness or a neutral. But it's just a matter of like drawing finer and finer stuff. But um, and that's a topic for another time. Okay, so now is not only love and hate are opposites in the sense they're inverted, but if you love, then by definition you hate, and if you hate, you by definition love. Okay. In other words, there's no there's no possibility of loving without hating or hating without loving. Any more than you can have an upward direction without a downward direction. Okay, now, so let's start with negative examples of hate. What would be a negative example of hate? 
I hate somebody because they insulted me. Yeah, that could happen. Yes? Okay. So how do we see that there's love there? No, 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 no. If I hate somebody because they insulted me, why does that automatically mean that I also love? I love myself. I'm very in love with myself. And to be a little more precise, I'm very in love with my own, um, myself, right? Rather than some like intrinsic level of being. That's right. So because I'm in love with my sense of myself, my sense of, you know, covered honor, dignity, whatever it is, and they have insulted that, right? I'm relating, I'm, I'm, I, I therefore hate that, right? You could take the same thing if somebody, um, if somebody, you know, hurt somebody you care about, right? You tend to have quite negative feelings of them. One of the one of the things that is creates a lot of conflict, emotional conflict in a person's life, is if I love two people, but those two people are having a fight, right? Because my love of the first person instinctively caught would cause me to hate the second because they're causing them suffering. But my love of the second instinctively causes me to hate the first. But I love both, and that can create a lot of dissonance, a lot of turmoil in a person. Um, one way that people often do that is by hating one go on. So if I love whatever I love, then things which are antithetical to it, things that go against it, I automatically have feelings of, of hatred towards. Okay? And again, hatred here does not have to mean with all the full intensity. It's something love doesn't have to mean with all the full intensity. Okay? So, and there are many other in words that, that go, go in the same category. So aversion, disgust, rejection, dislike, they all would fit into the general category. As much as like um, um, admire, enjoy, appreciate, like, all go in the love category. Infatuated, right? They all go in the same category. Make sense? We're on the same page? Okay. Now, this means... Basically, you're saying it's, it's a scale. They're both their own scales. Right. And, 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 the, and, and, and as a general rule, the more intense my love is, the more intense the corresponding hatred will be, if ever relevant. Right? Like, for instance, um, you, you've heard the idea that like, a, a mother's love for their child is a very intense love. So... What do you think, then, God forbid, if somebody does something to that child, what happens to the mother's hate for that person? It's one of the most intense hatreds. So, because the... Now, that doesn't mean automatically that I'm loving, I'm automatically hating because there's a circumstantial element there, right? I love my child, nothing bad is happening to her, nothing's threatening my child, so the, so the hate is only in potential. Would there be somebody who would hurt my child then I would hate them, but God, God, thank God that isn't happening, so I don't feel the hatred. Make sense? Okay. So, if we're going to say that someone doesn't hate, we're also saying that they don't love. So now we have to ask ourselves like this, and this is it. If we say that God loves, then we have to accept that God hates. And if we're uncomfortable with the idea that God hates, then that means that God isn't loving. Okay, now here's where we get into it. Here's where we get into a little bit of a tricky thing, which I think we should spend a little bit of time on. Can I be kind and tolerant to someone? I mean, two words, kind and tolerant, 
but not love them. Is that possible? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's break that. What does kind mean? If I'm kind to someone, what does that mean? More than that. I do stuff that's good for them to help them out, right? Okay. And tolerant would mean? What? Yeah, it's like, you know, like, like, like if, they, if they say thank you, they don't say thank you. They spit at me, they don't spit at me, right? Like, I, I can be, I, you can be kind to somebody, right? And tolerant. In other words, like if, if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't work out, like there's, a, there's an underlying, like, I'll be okay either way. It doesn't really impact me, okay? Um, be kind, right? But it doesn't mean I actually love them. It doesn't actually mean that I feel close to them and want to be closer to them, right? Conversely, can I be harsh with somebody and tolerant, but not hate them? Yes. Yeah. Give me an example of that where, at least in our, you know, what we expect, Example where someone is harsh, behaves harshly with someone, but at the same time there's, there's tolerance and they don't hate them. I feel like sometimes people are like, say, like if my teacher or things like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we expect that of like authority figures when they have to discipline. I was thinking more of a judge. If a judge, you know, if, if you, God forbid, burn down my house, right, and I'm harsh with you, that's coming from a place of hatred. But if you get arrested and you go in front of a judge, what we're hoping is that the judge is like, look, I got a life. I'm, I'm, I'm impartial. I'm indifferent. There's a right. There's a wrong. Okay, like, you know, based on some sense of justice, you, we need to, like, I don't know, punish you however we need to punish you. Okay. And the judge passes the punishment. But we would expect that the judge is not coming from a place of hatred, a place of, a place of, 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 of feeling any sort of negative emotion towards that person, right? That's what we hope hopefully distinguish between the judge and, and the, the injured party, right? That's why if you're the injured party, you shouldn't be the judge. Make sense? Mm -hmm. And let's say, re realize how often that really happens. Okay, right. So now, l l if, if we think about it, there is a way of relating to God as essentially a kind, sometimes kind, sometimes harsh, but altogether indifferent being. That God, so to speak, stands on high. We are mere mortals. What we do fundamentally doesn't affect him in any sort of meaningful way. And due to his lofty kindness, he bestows goodness upon us. And if we are wicked, he will judge us based on our wickedness, right? If that's, now, now, in that view of God, I might call God loving in some metaphoric sense. In the sense that like, even when he punishes us, it's ultimately for our benefit or something like that, right? But it really isn't love in the sense of an emotion, in the sense that God feels close to us and wants to be closer. You see the difference? Okay. So now, here's the problem. Can you have a relationship with that kind of a God? If, like, if your conception of God is that God is this higher, lofty being who's fundamentally indifferent to what goes on mortal beings, but out of his, you know, sense of propriety or kindness or whatever, he bestows goodness upon us and judges us when we misbehave, ultimately for our benefit. If that's your fundamental conception of what, where God is coming from in his interacting with us, is there really place for a personal relationship? No. No. Now there's a safety to that, right? What's the safety to that? Personal relationships require vulnerability, mm -hmm. right? And they, right, because you can hurt each other, right? 
and they require work, etc. Um, and so when someone says God loves us, the trick we have to, from the perspective of Chlidus is, what do you mean? Do you mean like love in the sense like, I love my wife, in the sense I feel close to her, I want to be with her. When things come between us, it bothers me, right? She feels the same way about me, right? Work, right? Or, and do you mean like that's what's going on? Like God actually feels close to me personally. Um, God wants to be closer. There are things that get in the way, right? And we have to deal with that. And then from my end back to him. Or do I mean it in a much more, more metaphoric sense that God is ultimately a decent being because like despite his transcendence, he's being kind to us. And when he judges us and harsh with us, it's ultimately for our benefit. And, and, and here's, here's the, the uncomfortable part is you can't, You can't be equivocal about that. You can't like sometimes one, sometimes the other if you really want to work on a relationship with Hashem. You have to kind of like say, you know, bite the bullet and say, no, 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 Hashem actually loves. Well, if Hashem actually loves, then that means I'm going to have to take the whole package, which means if he loves, he hates. And so what basically now, what I want to put this as is that from the perspective of Hasidus, that, that there really is a relationship with Hashem, then there is a real this thing that Hashem really loves and then there's a real thing that Hashem hates and that's not because Hashem is a bad or angry or whatever that's a necessary byproduct of what it is to love and without that he wouldn't love in a way that makes him a being we could have a relationship with does that make sense? okay does there anyone have any problems questions objections issues with this idea before we go forward and to go into what God hates Okay, so what are the things that God hates? He hates the klipa and sitra achra. Klipa means the shell, sitra achra means the other side, shell because it covers over godliness, and sitra achra because it's not the side of holiness. Other side, if there's a side of holiness, then there's the other side. Okay, now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the I'm going to start with a, with something that makes it sound a little bit disturbing, and then we'll work our way down from there. But the the thing that God likes, the thing that God loves, is God, and therefore, what is the thing that God hates? Well, let's be a little bit more technical here. Like if I if I love my son, therefore I hate. You? Something that's against God. Yeah. Now, it happens to be that the truth is that, and this is what I mentioned before, right, that everything is either pro-God or anti-God. There is no real, like, if you go deep down to it, there really is no neutral. But let's set that question aside for a moment, okay? God loves God and hates things that are anti-God, Okay? If I were to just stop the class at that, what would disturb you? <laughs> if I were to stop, like, like we're done. The thing that God loves is God. So basically God hates the thing that bothers you is that God hates most things? No, this is like everything is just about God. Yeah, everything's just what about God. God, God is just like a self-absorbed, you know, so egotistical being. Okay. So, 
Let's go back to a person. Everything you love, everything, everything, everything that you love, what do they all have in common? Other than the fact that you love them. I'm talking everything from the food you like all the way up to your family, meaning, purpose, God for that matter, if you love God, whatever it is. What do all the things you love have in common other than the fact that you love them? It makes you feel good. Um, not all of them make you feel good. Wait till you have children. <laughs> what? Or siblings? No, as you get, you can. You, they always make you feel good. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Like if your goal is to feel good, like have pleasant experiences, <laughs> like then you tend to more of the shallow things. And that add enough like emotion. It makes you feel more like more than just me. More than just me. That's feeling good. Yeah. Okay, but is that also true about like eating your favorite food? Makes you feel like feeling more just than just you? Because I said the, all the things you love have in common. They're all about you. They're all about you. Mm-hmm. In other words, this is an interesting thing is that you only love things that. This is a very bad way of putting it, but that plug into you in some way. That there's a slot for them in your life. That somehow your sense of being can incorporate them. Right? Make sense? Okay. So would it be fair to say that your everything you love is really just a version of loving yourself? Now, there's different levels of yourself, different aspects of yourself. <laughs> right? Like even a mother who loves her child, right? To the point of literal self-sacrifice. But... That's her child, right? And that, that so the touch is a very deep part of her. So the, the, in some sense, every time we love something, there's a sense in which we rightly or wrongly feel that that is somehow part of our existence, part of our being, part of who we are. And when we're closer to it, we're more ourselves. Now, the, the complicated thing with a person is that some of those different versions of ourselves really contradict. Like the, the self that I am that I feel really gets really fulfilled when I like eat my favorite food is in complete tension, complete contradiction with the sense of who I am like as you know, a, a person who's trying to serve Hashem. So there's a problem there. Right. Okay, but the point is all love is in some sense an, uh, an extending or envelop use of yourself and enveloping other things within to your sense of yourself, your sense of your own life, your sense of your own being. That makes sense? So Chassidus always speaks about, about love as being a hispastus, as being an extension, a radiating of yourself. Yeah? Okay. So now let's go back to Hashem. What is Hashem love? The only one thing Hashem loves, which is? Himself. Now, when we say, now let's go back to you. What's the only thing that you love? Yourself. Yourself. Now, but here's the tricky thing. When we say the only thing you love is yourself, what do we mean is that the only thing you love is this limited physical body right here and that's it? No. No, right? In fact, the deeper your sense of yourself, the more that you see how other things, your sense of self envelops other things and you want to be closer to those other things, right? So... Loving yourself can make you broader, right? Like so that, like, you know, friends, family, right? Meaning, purpose, stuff like that. It can also make you narrower, right? Like your favorite kind of fish. 
When we say that Hashem, Hashem loves himself, what is it more like? Is it more like the way I love fish? I don't actually love fish, I love lasagna, but whatever. Or the more the way um, a mother loves a child. If we had to pick between those two, which one is, it's more like the second. In other words, it's not like, oh, that mother, she only loves herself. She's so wrapped up to herself, she doesn't care about her kids. I mean, that, that, that's not what we're saying, no. Her sense of herself radiates and extends far beyond her individual person. So she sees other things as part of herself, as extension of herself, and maybe even more herself than her own being, right? I mean, you know, the idea that, the, that a mother would give up her life to save her child's life, right? What does that tell you? That in some sense she feels that the child is, is more, in some sense, her than her own physical being. So when we say that what, well, one thing that Hashem loves is himself, does it mean that all Hashem, the only thing Hashem loves is just the intrinsic being God and that's it? Well, no, because if that was the case, then Hashem wouldn't have created anything, would he? So what does it mean that Hashem loves himself? He loves things that are an extension of himself, that reflect himself. He loves how he is in, embedded and reflected and incorporated in things beyond himself. In other words, he loves, his love is a love of sharing of himself, extending himself. So what does it mean that Hashem um, loves a person? What would that mean? So when Hashem looks at that person, what does Hashem see in that person? Himself. There's something of himself in that person. And so when Hashem is closer to that person, Hashem is more whole, so to speak. And when Hashem is further away, and then there's a distance between that person and Hashem, then Hashem is somehow fragmented in some kind of self-exile, self-alienation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So... Then what would Hashem hate? Things that are against that. Things that aren't. Things that are against that. Even if the thing is not necessarily intentionally against it, but the fact of the matter is it's creating a barrier, right? Um, there are many things that we feel some kind of negativity towards, not because they're, they're, they're intentionally going against us, but because they create barriers between us and those we love, right? For instance, I don't think most of us believe that um, viruses have intent, right? Do we think viruses have intent? No, but I don't. I think most of us feel some sort of negativity towards the coronavirus because it like creates barriers in our lives that we would prefer not be there, right? Okay. So something which is not on the side of holiness—it's a klipa, it's a barrier, it blocks. It creates a barrier between Hashem and Hash, how Hashem can be found in something else that Hashem hates. And the greater the barrier, the stronger the barrier, the more he hates it. The less of a barrier, the less permanent the barrier, the less he hates it. Does that make sense? Okay. So as Hashem, when we say Hashem hates, we're we saying that Hashem walks around like this angry, I hate. No. It's all stems from love. Hashem loves. What does it mean that he loves? He, 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 he has this feels how his being is reflected in other things. It's reflected in the world he created, it's reflected in people, it's reflected in the Jewish people, it's reflected in the Torah, whatever. And therefore, he wants to be close to that. Right? And the closer he is, the better it is, and the further he is, the worse it is. But then that means those things which create barriers and obstacles, those are things that he's going to have the opposite thing towards. He's going to feel removed from those, and he's going to want, you know, desire them to disappear, to go away, and that's the feeling of hatred. 
Make sense? Good? Okay. So now, this isn't the question for here, but I think I should address it here because Balter doesn't address it until much later. So I'm going to address it now. There's a very big difference between Hashem and everybody else, which is that I don't create reality, do I? So if Hashem loves himself, I mean, he loves how everything reflects his being and part of it, his godliness is manifest in there, then why would he create klipas? Why would he create sitrach? Why would he create something that covers over that, that blocks that if he hates it so much? It's a fair question? Yeah. Okay. So you're smart. Anyone know an answer to that question? No one has any answers. It's all the latkes make it hard to think. What? To test? To like see how much you love him? Like you couldn't figure that out without, without that? Okay, so there, there's, 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 there's a few different answers. One answer, I'm going to just give broad answers. One answer is that there is a different quality of connection when the connection has to overcome obstacles. Now, that kind of connection is better in one sense and worse in another sense. It's not so cool when you have to create obstacles, though, in order to create. Like, I'm just saying, in the sense of relationships when I know that another person's creed, or, well, I guess the key word here would be person. Right. There is a... Okay, so this is an important thing that we need to understand when we're talking about Hashem, is that we we always have to remember there's a limit to how much we can compare Hashem to a person. Right. So, another person doesn't... If another person is intentionally creating obstacles and barriers in the relationship in order to make the relationship better... There's something um, quite cynical about that. It's manipulative. Okay, right. Now, why? Why? Everything comes down to the value of person being a person. Though. That's right, because the other person, first off, it's un- the starting point is actually unnecessary. Yeah. Right? There's enough <laughs> obstacles for the very fact that you and the other person are not the same person, right? That's already creates another obstacle. Like, if there's no obstacle between you, try and be closer. You'll discover some obstacles, right? Okay? You don't have to create them. So you're doing something that's unnecessary, which then creates the question of why are you doing that? Right? It's not really necessary. No, when you talk now about Hashem, with Hashem, if Hashem doesn't create something, it isn't, it's not in existence. So... If there is anything to be gained by working through obstacles, then he's going to have to create them. Okay? The second thing is, the second thing is that um, there are cases, there are cases where people do create obstacles intentionally and it's not, and if you have a mature enough perspective, it's not necessarily an obstacle. And that's cases where um, there's a big disparity. So let's say, for instance, um, if a child is learning to walk, right? The parents can walk. The child can't walk. 
So what do the parents do? They walk away from the child a little bit, and then the child has to make some steps closer, right? Does the parent have to do that? But what if the parent doesn't do that? Then what's going to happen? Right. So here we have a situation where, where the, the, the creation of the obstacle is necessary because unless... Unless the, the unless the parent like hold like pulls themselves away, they're not creating the opportunity for the child to develop. Right. The same thing if you're tutoring somebody. You know the an- they're frustrated. You know the answer. You could just give them the answer, but then what ends up happening? They don't learn anything. Right. So we have two things. Number one, we have the fact that everything exists only because Hashem makes it. And number two, there really is this disparity. It could be that Hashem could be really close to us without obstacles, but can we be equally close to? Him with- without the obstacles, and that, if the answer to that is no, then he really does need to make the obstacles. So there, there's, this whole, there's this whole train of thought, okay? Um, there are other answers, and Tanya it gives that, but it also gives other answers. The thing that I want to point out just about this answer, and actually it's true about all the answers, how does Hashem feel about the obstacles? How does he feel about them? He hates them. He hates the obstacles that he creates. He hates the. In other words, you can hate something and still feel that it's necessary. Those are not contradictory, right? So God has a problem. It's like I love, I love. I want to be closer. Getting closer in a in, in, in a profound, genuine requires I having I what? That says in the pasuk, and Alter says in time. Plus, you know, every Tuesday, Hashem and I go out for lunch, and he tells me what he thinks. Um, yeah, but I, sorry. I was you know I was gonna make a joke about sacrifices, but um, never mind. Okay. Who said they fail? Lots of people. How do you know? Did you ask them? How do you know what the obstacle is meant to achieve? Um. Well, we know it's a possibility of failure for sure. So, do you know? If it's going to work out the way it's supposed to work out, fine, cool, cool. But, like, there is a better option. Oh, that's, that's sure. Um, so there's something in business. When you enter a business negotiation, there's a few things you need to know. Number one, do you have the power to control the other person's decision-making process? No. No. Mm. You can't control it. You can't control it, no. Okay. I mean, you can change you what... You can definitely change the circumstances, but you can't control it, right? Okay. Now, well, that means you have a problem because at the end of the day, if you want them to say yes, they could say no. So what are you going to do? You being a wise business person, what are you going to do? You're going to try and present your business plan to... 
get around an obstacle that might prevent them from doing At the end of the day, you could have the best, most convincing reason they still could say no. Then what are you going to do? What? Uh, that's what makes that's what makes people like you and me really bad at business. You know what makes people really good at business, good at business? Is they think, okay, how do I make it so that regardless of what they say, I'm going to still come out ahead? So like this, they say, I want them to say yes. If they say yes, it's much better. For sure, much better. But if they say no, right? just like give you like a, like a simple, I'll still come out ahead. Like there are people that, are, I'll give you just a simple example. People that invest in the crazy businesses, like the, the venture capital, they invest in, in like, most of them end up failing, but if some of them become really successful, they can make millions of dollars. So how do people invest in these kinds of things? Well, they run the numbers and they say, okay, how many of these things succeed? Let's say, for argument's sake, let's say it's one out of every four, it's not. Okay, then that means I need to be, in, I need to be investing in enough of them where the rate of return and the ones that are expected to succeed will cover my losses plus a profit. And they're not like, I don't, this one fails, I don't care if this one fails, because I've got like 20 more lined up, and one of them statistically is going to succeed, and will succeed enough to cover my losses in the other 20. It's like a different way of thinking. But there's still technically taking a risk. Yeah, but, but the, the risk becomes so minimalized. And the risk is so that how much your return is going to be, not so much. Yeah, then there's, we talk about these people who are like really good at business, like uh, what's his name, that really, really wealthy guy that lives out in Ohio, what's his name? Warren Buffett. So like his whole like thing and like a lot of people like this is like how do you like figure out how, what what decisions you can make that regardless of what happens you're still going to come out ahead. Now is there still a better and worse? There's a better and worse, but the worst is I mean look you know if an asteroid hits the Earth and destroys all life on Earth then that would be bad and there's nothing that's a risk right? But people like you know most of us we're doing things and it's like if it works out great and if it doesn't like it's the end of the world and. There's a, you have, a person has an, either enough creativity or enough resources that they're not really taking a risk. It's open-ended how it will play out, and there's definitely a better outcome and a worse outcome, but they'll end up ahead either way. So people that have that kind of way of thinking about it, they do really well in business. So now apply that to God. That's like, look, we're going to get a Our relationship's going to get better one way or the other. It could get better because like, we have a 2,000-year fight, and then we make up. That'll be better. It could be better because we don't have a 2,000-year fight. Either way, it will end up getting better. One of them is more painful. One of them is less painful. They're not all the outcomes are the same. But in the end of the day, this question of is relationship going to get better is going to happen. So therefore, ultimately, everything serves its purpose. But it is not the case that, that everything is stacked in some way so it has to work out that way. And so you take, for instance, let's say a person's tempted to do an Avera. What are the possibilities? Possibly number one is you overcome your temptation, you don't do the Avera. So that's good, right? Possibly number two is you do the Avera, and that creates a separation from Hashem, right? But because you have a godly soul, only, you can only tolerate so much separation, which means eventually what happens? Everyone eventually does Tshuva. So you can connect to Hashem this way, you connect to Hashem that way. Everyone eventually does tshuva. Everyone does tshuva for the same reason that if you throw something up, it comes down. 
we have an innate connection to Hashem. So eventually we do tshuva. Now, how many lifetimes does it take to tshuva is a different question. All right. But so this idea that, that this idea that it, it's going to be a, it, it's God is taking a risk. The risk is that it could it could be very unpleasant along the way, and it might go in the less desirable outcome. But it's not a risk in the sense that maybe God oh didn't work out and God failed. Okay, we will continue possibly tomorrow depending on how traffic goes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure to like.